Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sneha Anavarapu, the host of this channel. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of being in conversation with Dr. James Staples about his new book, Sacred Cows and Chicken Manchurian, The Everyday Politics of Eating Meat in India, hot off University of Washington Press. Thank you so much, James, for taking time out to chat with me today. I really enjoyed your book, and as an ethnographer, the lucidity of your writing was so very inspiring. Thank you. So before we dive into the book, um, I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about yourself, perhaps how you became an anthropologist. Yes, well, I suppose as is often the case probably with, with anthropologists or lots of anthropologists that I've met, um, serendipity played a very large part in it. Um, when I left school initially, which was in the early 1980s, I had planned at the time to go to university and study a degree in English literature and philosophy. I, I toyed a little bit with sociology, which in those days, or certainly schools in the area where I grew up in the south of England, was seen as being fairly newfangled, something that was quite modern. Um, it had only been introduced into my school the last year that I was there. Um, and so I thought, oh, this sounds really interesting because I loved the idea of studying society. Um, but when it came down to it, I was put off, I think, in part by the quantitative element of it, by the statistics, but also the, the fact that it's analyses of things like class, things that I was very interested in at the time, seemed to miss out the very elements that I was interested in. I mean, I'm sure there are sociologists who do look into these things, but um, at that level, the kind of fine grained detail, the kind of nuances of everyday people's lives, which was the stuff that I was interested in, didn't seem to be there or didn't seem to be prominent. So, you know, you could look into um, a Marxist analysis of class, for example, which seemed to tell me nothing that I wanted to know about why working class families, for example, that I knew and went to school with, why they ate different things, for example, or in different ways to middle-class families of school friends and, and how these things were depicted through eating, through what people wore, through the way people spoke, through all of these intricate kinds of things, which really had very little to do with, you know, who, who owned the means of production and so on. Um, and at that point, I also wanted to take some time out before going to university. And I was lucky enough to have a friend um, in my class at school who had an aunt who was a British nurse who happened to be working um, in a leprosy colony in India that she had not quite stumbled across, but she was working there independently. Um, and at that point, I knew more or less nothing about India at all. But for my purposes, it seemed to be suitably far away, suitably different to anything I knew about um, and from where I gr had grown up in the south of England. Um, so I wrote to her and said, you know, could I come and spend six months or a year um, and maybe work there as, as a volunteer, um, which happily she agreed to. 
Um, and it was really only when I was there, there had been a previous volunteer who was just starting um, a degree in anthropology. So it was there that I heard um, what anthropology was um, and realized in a way, I guess, that it was what I had been looking for all along. It was something that I think I was interested in really before I knew knew what it was or even really knew that it existed. And I realized that it would also give me an opportunity to pursue this newfound interest, this newfound love that I had for for India. It meant that potentially I could go back um, and spend more time there, which is what I wanted to do. Um, so when I came back to the UK six months later, I um, cancelled um, my application to do the, the degree in English that I'd planned, um, and I reapplied, reapplied to go to SOAS, um, where I studied where I studied anthropology as an undergraduate in the end from 87 to 90. So I took three years off in the end and went, went back to India um, in the meantime. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was really how it started. And doing anthropology then enabled me to pursue both uh, the things thematically that I was interested in, but also this new interest that I had in India specifically. Wow. And, you know, speaking of serendipities, uh, how did this particular project unfold or what is the story of this book? Gosh, well, I, I suppose I've been working in the same field site, which was this leprosy colony that I originally um, came to visit way back in 19, 1984. So you know, well over 30 years ago. Um, although my first field work, my first formal field work, my PhD field work um, was in 1999, 2000. Um, and I'd also worked a bit more recently, um, since about 2005, also in, in Hyderabad, in the city of Hyderabad. And I started out, um, my initial research was related to, to leprosy, to social aspects of leprosy, how the disease leprosy was experienced by people on the ground, and so on. And my approach, I think, had always been to, in a way, to follow my nose, to let me be directed by what my interlocutors were interested in, by you know, trying to find out what animated them. Um, and that took me in various different directions. It took me into looking at disability more generally, which was the project I, I pursued in Hyderabad, but also then back to suicide back in the, in the village, in the leprosy colony where I'd first worked, partly because there'd been an increase, quite a sharp increase in the numbers of young people in the leprosy colony who had been taking their lives or self-harming, um, but also because it was occurring at a time when, you know, farmer suicides were making the headlines and there seemed to be some kind of disconnect between what I was reading in the papers, you know, that it was only farmers who were committing suicide and what I could see on the ground. Um, and then around, I suppose, the same time, this was 1999, 2000, I also detected among the Christians that I encountered in the local town, this was the town closest to the leprosy colony um, where I did my fieldwork, what seemed to me to be something of a shift in attitudes towards meat-eating or towards beef-eating in particular. Um, and I'd been a vegetarian and for a while a pescatarian you know, pretty much since that first trip to India back in '84. And until that point, it had never been an issue with anybody at all. It felt you know, relatively easy, actually, compared to being a vegetarian in the UK in the 1980s. It was very easy to be one um, in, in India. There were lots of vegetarians there. 
people had a category for it, they understood um, what it was. But at that point, I discovered that I was, I was going to people's houses for dinner, um, Christians in the local town for dinner, who knew I was a vegetarian, but who were trying to tempt me with, with, with beef dishes. And which struck me in itself as, as slightly odd, because I thought, well, I, I've told them I've been vegetarian, and they know what vegetarians are, um, and so on. You know, why, why are they now offering it to me and being disappointed when I turn it down, and even in some cases, slightly offended? Um, so I noted all this stuff down, um, and I probably didn't pay very much more attention to it. It was something niggling away in the back of my mind until, I guess, a year or two later when I was back in the UK um, and I was invited to a workshop that was being organised by Caroline Seller, who worked in Kerala, um, had just done a big project, I think, on consumption in India. Um, and she organised this workshop on, I think she phrased it as the veg-non-veg divide, the split between vegetarianism or so-called vegetarianism and non-vegetarianism. Um, and she asked me if I had any material that I could write about for this special issue that she was planning. And initially, I wasn't really sure that I had until I went back into my field notes and found, you know, I had more notes about food than almost almost anything else. There was lots and lots of stuff on food and on commensality, um, particularly on meat eating. Um, so I wrote a paper on it at that point, which came out, I think that would have been 2009. Um, and I guess that that was really the first step into what a, dec a decade or so later um, eventually became this book, um, which also was spurred on by you know, real-time changes that were happening in India by this increasingly hard line that was being taken by the Hindu nationalist government, by the BJP, um, which has been in power since 2014. So I've seen shifts um, you know, in the way that people approach beef both before then and subsequently. So I, I was able to record um, all of those things and the book took shape, I think, from that. Yeah, and uh, just going off on that, I think the book very succinctly put and perhaps uh, simplistically put by me is an exploration of how competing discourses around meat eating are deployed for or against various groups of people, especially in the South where you did your fieldwork, South India. Um, I particularly loved how you argue that by locating meat within the context of people's daily diets, we can begin to get a sense of the material and symbolic importance of meat to those who eat it. Um, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about why taking this resolutely ethnographic approach matters to thinking about contemporary um, politics around meat eating. Okay. Yeah. I mean, thank you. And yes, that was a. It was succinct, but I don't think it was simplistic. <laughs> I think that was a very good summary um, in lots of ways. Um, I mean, I think it matters. Look, taking an ethnographic approach matters because it's really in the these empirical realities, you know, these fine-grained details of people's everyday lives. Um, it's really only through those that you can get at. Uh, sorry, that you can only really get at these through sustained, detailed ethnographic fieldwork. Um, you know, that you can't necessarily get from carrying out interviews or you know, dipping into people's lives and then going out very rapidly. Um, and I think it's these particular empir empirical realities that often undermine the assumptions that people have about eating meat in India. 
you know, and what people do, particularly in relation to this issue, I think often tells a very different story to what people might tell you they do when you ask them questions, or if you read official kinds of explanations or explanations that you might read about in in newspapers or in you know guidebooks on India and and so on. Um, and one of the assumptions, for example, firstly, is that vegetarianism is the norm in India. There's this, I think, popular conception that if not most, that a very large proportion of people in India are vegetarian, when in fact, you know, more than two thirds of the population and possibly a a larger number than that um, do eat meat, at least sometimes. Um, And that despite this assumption, the other assumption that beef is utterly taboo, that nobody eats beef in India, that the cow is always seen as being sacred, that around a fifth of the of, of the population, I mean, there are a number of figures sort of between 17 and, and 20%, but either way, it's a lot of people in real terms, um, do, do eat beef actually within India. And you know, you've got large, you know, India being one of the biggest exporters of beef in the world, for example. But then in addition to that, also, as you delve deeper, you also realize that this very binary distinction that's drawn between vegetarianism and non-vegetarianism is also actually much more complicated than it seems on the surface. You know, that you've got people, for example, who are vegetarian or who consider themselves vegetarian at some points in their lives, but not necessarily at others. People aren't either one or the other. It's not this kind of terminal identity that's necessarily um, always connected with yourself. And then you also have some you know, who claim to be vegetarian, people I met who claim to be vegetarian um, and who perhaps are vegetarian at home but eat meat some of the time. You know, there were men who would say, yes, absolutely that they were vegetarian but would go out and eat other men, sorry, not eat other men, meet other men um, and, you know, be drinking alcohol, drinking whiskey with them, eating fried chicken, for example, in particular places. It might be done discreetly but, um, it complicated the the idea of what a vegetarian was, um, and then you have meat eaters that I knew, people who came from non-vegetarian castes who had no objection to eating meat, but in reality probably ate it less frequently than some of the vegetarians that I knew because they couldn't afford it or couldn't access it um, for various for various different kinds of reasons. And then to complicate matters even further. I think you also have multiple distinctions even within the category of meat and even within the category of just beef, for example, um, in relation to what people eat. You know, who eats buffalo meat and who eats cow meat, for example, and what are the distinctions that people draw between those, even though they're both sold as as, as beef? Um, what if, for example, you eat the heart or you eat the liver um, but not the regular flesh. You know, what does that say about you? Or what do you think it says about you? Um, or what if you eat a beef dish that is served in a gravy, for example, which is um, of the beef dishes perhaps the most respectable of them, but at the same time you draw a line at eating you know, dried beef or beef which has been fried, which is, again, associated more with something that you would drink um, as an accompaniment to alcohol, for example. So, you know, in itself would be less prestigious. So there were these additional kinds of hierarchies um, 
at each level as 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 well as this what's often presented as a very kind of crude distinction between vegetarianism and non-vegetarianism or between beef on the one hand and all kinds of other meat um, on the other. That the reality, and I suppose going back to your previous question, which only comes really out of that that kind of rich ethnographic inquiry, um, you only really get at those details by doing that. Yeah, um, and... You know, in in chapter one, you take us through what you refer to as differential histories of meat eating. And while I realize it's impossible to summarize the very complex historical background to why cattle has constituted such a central motive to communalization in India, I was wondering if you would uh, want to contextualize what you just said in uh, in terms of like the recent reanimation of uh, bovine Mm -hmm. politics in contemporary uh, Indian uh, uh, political scenario, especially with the rise of uh, the BJP, as you, you, you yourself talked about a few minutes ago? Okay, yeah, well, I'll, I'll try to. I mean, I think in the book, I go back 3,000 years or something to try and look at, <laughs> yeah. at, at some of those issues that are, but, but which have, as you say, been reanim- reanimated in the present, you know, when the government has, has been invoking Vedic texts and things that it claims are in the Vedic texts. I mean, I think the current resurgence in cow protectionism, which, as you say, comes particularly from the Hindu right or the Hindu fundamentalism, can probably be traced back, I would say, at least to the Hindu reform movements that we had in the late 19th century, so the late 1800s, when the idea of the cow as sacred started to become an important part of resistance against colonialism, against the British colonial government you know, helped to separate out the beef-eating colonial foreigner from the cattle-loving Indian. Indian it gave you a particular national identity against which Indians, in theory at least, could, could group. So it helped to sharpen national identity in that sense at that period, I think. Um, and although the issue is, is one that's ebbed and flowed, it's become more or less important over the years in the post-colonial period, so you know, since the late 1940s um, onwards, I think it's really in the last decade or so that the issue of, of cow protectionism has certainly become a key aspect or a key tenet of the BJP's pitch, of the current government's pitch. Um, they've increasingly promoted cow protection as being part of India's heritage, Um, And although that's often presented and it's often seen, I think, from the outside as being something which is relatively benign, you know, because everybody knows that cows are sacred um, in India. That's just part of their culture, part of their heritage and so on. Um, What it does is is, is to recast communal or caste discrimination in in more palatable terms. it, It enables people to deny that they object to people because they're Muslims or because they're they're Dalits. Instead, they can say, well, actually, what we object to, it's not that. We don't mind the fact that they're Muslims. We don't mind that they're Dalits. It's not because they're impure or whatever. The problem is the fact that they eat beef. Um, So I think it's something that's effectively enabled the othering of people within India who do eat beef. And so you've got Dalits, um, Dalit people from Dalit castes who eat beef, cobbler caste people, butchers and so on, but also Muslims in general, Christians and other non-Hindus. 
it enables those groups of people to be characterized somehow as as non-Indian, as not fully Indian in the way that Hindus are. Um, you know, that only Hindus from this perspective can be properly classified as, as, as Indian. And in turn, I think this has also given vigilante groups the confidence, if you like, to go out and to enforce anti-cattle slaughter laws or to enforce anti-cattle um, sentiment in ways which they see fit, in ways that they perhaps would not have done in the past. Um, so we've seen this upsurge, and which happened over the time you know, that I was doing the fieldwork for this book, from I mean, particularly in 2016, 17, 18, you saw an upsurge in violent attacks, in some case, cases even murders, of people who are trading in cattle or beef or people who might have it in the, even in their refrigerators, for example. There's a man killed famously for having what was suspected to be beef in his refrigerator, even though it wasn't clear necessarily that that's, that, that that's what it was. Um, and initially, these things were not taking place to the same extent in the South. So when I started the field work, people were talking about, you know, how this stuff was, was going on in the North, in the, in the cow protection belt or the cow belt, cow belt of kind of central to Northern India. But it was increasingly also becoming an issue um, in the South, particularly in, in places like Hyderabad, for example. Um, so hopefully that's enough detail. Otherwise, I'll, I'll yeah. keep going on for <laughs> forever. No, I mean, I think you do such a uh, you've done such a great job in summarizing what is understandably a very layered and uh, complex argument in uh, chapter one. So thank you for that. Um, but in chapter two, you uh, chapter two provides a really granular and detailed understanding of the daily diets of your interlocutors. Um, I must add that as someone who is from coastal Andhra myself, I found myself longing for the dishes you so eloquently described. And it was a pleasure to read, but it also made me so homesick and nostalgic. <laughs> but I mean, analytically, I found your argument that subtle changes in the way things tasted, felt and looked helped to convey and enabled people to talk about social change. I found this really persuasive and I was hoping that you could share uh, some of the mechanisms through which people make sense of social change through food consumption. Uh, I, I was hoping you could share some of that with our listeners. Okay. Um, yes. I think one of my arguments was that as food itself changes in a material kind of way, um, so does its capacity to change meaning. Um, so, for example, and, and, and I think that in a way that needed to be articulated because I think people, you know, think of something like rice or whatever it is as, as being very constant and not changing. But something like, even like tea, for example, the drink tea, um, which used to be something with which you could honour guests because it was relatively rare and it was quite expensive to get and you needed to buy a whole package of it. Um, if you didn't have electricity, you had no way of storing milk. So at different times during the day, it was actually very difficult to access you know, fresh buffalo milk, milk that hadn't gone off. Um, now, th th these days, potentially you could because people had fridges in some cases or there were shops in the village that had fridges. So you could go and buy a, a, a bag of milk um, much more easily. You could also buy single portion packets of tea. So these tiny packets of tea, which would enable somebody who didn't necessarily have very much money, if I went round to you know, send one of their children out to the local shop to buy you know, a couple of teaspoons, essentially, of tea 
um, and make it for me. It also tasted different than it had done even back in the 1980s when I first went to India because, you know, in those days you would have boiled it up with fresh, very creamy buffalo milk. Um, it would have been sweetened with jaggery or bellum, this kind of locally produced sugar. Um, whereas nowadays, nowadays, because you made it with these, 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 these packaged teas, because you made it with milk that was probably pasteurized and semi-skimmed, um, and you sweetened it with granulated sugar, that although you were making it in the same way, it, it tasted different. Um, but also, because it was more ubiquitous, because it was something that people could provide very easily, it also became much harder to use this offering of a glass of tea or a cup of tea as a way of honouring a guest in the way that you could in the past. It was much more of a commonplace. Um, and what I observed was that people then you know, found other ways to mark these kinds of distinctions. So they might start offering me tea in a different kind of drinking vessel, for example, to those that might have been used by members of the household on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, some had these you know, small china teacups and things. And often these china teacups in themselves, they weren't more intrinsically valuable than the, than the steel teacup. In fact, the steel one was probably much more expensive and often more savoury as well because these teacups were often a bit chipped and kind of grimy and dusty from being left on people's shelves you know, for years waiting for a guest to come who, who warranted being served tea in this, in, in, in this way. Um, so I think the ways in which foodstuffs changed, often in very subtle kinds of ways, um, had and, and how they were served and how they were presented and how accessible they were to people all had implications for what they potentially could mean. Um, at the same time, I think there was also lots of nostalgia about how things used to taste, you know, how things tasted back in the past. Um, people would often talk about how vegetables you know, back in the 60s, 70s, whenever it was they were referring to, tasted better because they'd been grown without chemical pesticides. Or that chickens were better then because they were, they were chewier, they were more flavoursome, because they'd been raised much more slowly. They were raised at home, people fed them slowly. You know, they took six months rather than six weeks to grow to the size where they were considered edible. And they weren't pumped with hormones. You know, I don't actually know if broiler chickens are pumped with hormones, but certainly this was the perception that they were, that they were fed chemicals to make them big and watery and, and kind of soft. Um, and rice as well was different because you know, pre the Green Revolution, it had been hand pounded. Um, you know, you didn't, weren't able necessarily to send it to be milled. Um, and it had to be sifted manually. And I can remember people doing this, you know, when I first used to go to the village in these sifters, which took time. Um, and it, had a, it gave a certain tempo to the preparation of rice, which, you know, allowed women to sit around doing it together and chatting and so on. All of which is then lost once you start to buy um, rice that comes, you know, ready packaged um, in a bag that's been pre-cleaned and it's been milled um, and, and, and so on. So the very act of preparing it on preparing it in a different way changes the ways in which people potentially can relate to one another but also the kinds of memories that food is allowed to evoke i mean you talked about you know how your memories of particular foods in, in andra um, evoke those kinds of feelings which they do for me as well but i think for a lot of the people that i was, was talking to the fact also that food had changed evoked certain kinds of of memories it made them remember how food how good food used to be um, and how it was now. 
And it, there was a kind of ambivalence about it because, you know, you could have chicken much more often now because it was cheaper um, and it was cheaper because it was produced much more quickly and so on. Um, but it didn't taste as good as far as they were concerned. So it kind of did the job, but their appreciation of it was slightly lukewarm because they felt you know, back in the day, not only did you have these these more delicious foodstuffs, but the acts of preparing them enabled you to engage in in social relationships, which when you bought food in modern packaging and so on, um, just didn't permit in, in, in quite the same way. So I suppose in short, I think the central point that I make in, in, in that chapter is that the social meanings which food can carry are, are very much bound up in their materiality. So I wanted to get away from that idea that you know symbols had no necessarily ne- necessary connection with the thing that they represented. Um, it seemed to me that it was actually very important, the materiality of the thing, um, and, and also were bound up in the material processes that people engage in to source particular foodstuffs, to prepare them, um, as well as to eat them. Yeah, I mean, I for one was very persuaded, so thank you for, for that intervention. Um, so in Chapter 3, you focus on the sale and purchase of beef, that is cow meat. And I was struck by the complex entanglements of love and care between cattle and their owners, particularly your writing around beef-eating Dalits and their buffaloes, how there's complex entanglements of love and care, um, those relations. Um, This is such an important observation to counter uh, as you put it, this assumption that the respect for the cattle is the sole preserve of upper caste Hindus. Um, I think the renewed focus on animal studies, I'm also thinking of Radhika Govindrajan's work, is so critical to counter these otherizing narratives amongst upper caste Hindus, especially right now. Um, what was even more interesting uh, to me in this chapter is your focus on how ignorance, or more specifically, the business of knowing and not knowing, is so vital to the maintenance of the sale and consumption of beef. As an ethnographer of the state, I particularly enjoyed your argument around how the state too indulges in this business of like knowing and not knowing a very carefully choreographed dance around ignorance. Um, Can you walk us through this argument a little bit and its ramifications on how we think about legality and illegality in India? Yes. um, what, What I was curious about here was really how was it possible? How did it come to be? How how could you reconcile the fact that on the one hand, India was one of the biggest, if not the biggest, exporters of beef in the world, with the perception, on the other hand, that beef eating and cattle slaughter was really only a concern of minority groups in India, and certainly not something that the state um, and others were were involved in. Um, And at the same time, we also had the idea that Really, it was only high caste Hindus who cared about their animals, as you as you pointed out. When the Dalit caste people I knew and Muslims I knew who kept buffaloes um, really seemed to to love their cattle, really cared often very deeply about um, their cattle in in the ways that you talked about. So again, it was the question of the empirical reality really didn't stand up or, or didn't match at all the perceptions. Um, that were out there. And it was kind of how, how, how could these things be reconciled? Or how could these ideas about cows and, and about cattle um, and about beef, how could they be sustained when the empirical reality was so 
glaringly different. Um, so I think the question for which I was seeking an answer was, you know, how did these ideas manage to persist despite the empirical evidence to the contrary, which it seemed to me everyone could see. Um, and the answer that I came up with, so the argument that I try um, to present in that chapter, was that these, these contradictory ideas could only be sustained by strategically not knowing certain things. So that if, for example, you were a high-caste dairy farmer or a non-beef-eating um, caste dairy farmer, and you've got an old cow that no longer gives milk, or you've got a male animal, you've got an ox that was excess to your requirements or could no longer, you know, was no longer strong enough to pull a cart, for example, it meant that there were mechanisms in place that enabled you not to know that you were selling it on to become, to become meat. You, know, you didn't go out and find a butcher and sell it to him because that would have been unacceptable. So you went to a brochure, oh, sorry, a broker, a broker. You went to a broker who traditionally would have been from a Yadav caste, so a non-beef eating caste again, um, rather than going directly to a butcher. And the butcher, who would be most likely a Muslim or a Dalit, um, in Andhra, probably a Madiga, one of, a, a member of the, the, the leatherworking caste, um, once he'd acquired that animal for slaughter, they'd either have the animal killed privately and they would sell it from stalls that were hidden from the rest of the marketplace behind walled compounds. So if you weren't in the know, you could go around the market without ever seeing anybody selling or buying beef. And it was really only when I came to do this project, actually, and explicitly went to the market to go into these places that I knew that they were there. You didn't, it was quite hard to just stumble across them. And then when you bought the meat as well, it was packed into these opaque, um, black plastic bags. It wasn't the kind of see-through bags that you got um, when you bought vegetables or you bought certain other things. Um, and because the flesh was also sold as meat, almost generically as meat, even though people kind of knew um, what it was, it meant those buying it to eat could also avoid knowing. So you could avoid knowing if you're a Dalit, for example, who might say that you only ate buffalo meat because that was good for your constitution and that you didn't eat um, other forms of meat because, oh, sorry, other for, uh, you, you wouldn't eat cow meat because that was associated with, with Muslims. But it also enabled Muslims to eat the same meat and they would buy it from the same shops, um, saying that they only ate cow meat, um, beef that came from a cow, al mansum, because you know, they didn't necessarily either want to eat buffalo meat, which was associated with very low caste Hinduism. Um, and then the state, sorry to come on to <laughs> what I think was actually your question. Um, initially, the state, despite what it said about cattle slaughter and beef eating, so having this very public rhetoric of being against it, was also impl implicated um, in these processes. You know, it often owned the slaughterhouses, at least at municipal level. Um, it, it regulated the cattle markets. It took a cut of profits from those places. Um, also, in terms of legality and illegality, it, it seemed to me that people saw the law not in this absolute kind of way, in the, in the way that perhaps I would have been prone to see it. And maybe that was just my own um, naivety. I don't even know if people within my own society see it in that way. But I think it was seen as defining the parameters within which so-called illegal activities took place. 
So, you know, when you told butchers not to slaughter animals in their own compounds, for example, this was read by the people that, that, that I spoke to as, as, as telling them to be discreet in the way that they carried out slaughter. It wasn't telling them not to do it. And I'd say, well, aren't you worried about being caught? You know, you've had this announcement that, that slaughters must only take place in the slaughterhouses, that you shouldn't be doing it in your compounds. And they said, no, 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 don't, don't, don't be silly. You know, they, they realise that people are sensitive about this, so we must be, we've, we've got to keep it un, un, under wraps. And as long as we also give them a cut of meat, then we, we won't be troubled by, by those people. Um, so it was a very different relationship to the law than the kind of what, what I assume to be the, the, the obvious universal kind of one, that, uh, which actually was just, I think, in my imagination. Right. Yeah. Um, thanks for that. And I was also thinking about how it's precisely this, uh, no, this uh, business of knowing and not knowing that I guess is fueling all of the suspicion around who is carrying what kinds of meat. And uh, I guess that is also how cow protectionists frame their interventions, right? Like, again, like uh, uh, lynching people for on the suspicion of carrying um, cow meat when in fact that is not the case. So it's interesting how this knowing and not knowing just kind of circulates in different um, in, and mediates different kinds of relations. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, yes, it does. Yeah, yeah, it does. As exactly in the way that you said, it does spill out um, onto the other side as well. Um, yeah, and yeah, that nobody really knows what a lot of this meat um, is, and that people who were legitimately carrying you know, cows that might be being transported to be dairy herds, for example, themselves also found themselves on the sharp end. Particularly if they were Muslims, would find themselves on the sharp end of vigilante groups who would, you know, seize their cattle and take it away from them, even though it wasn't destined for the slaughterhouse necessarily. So yeah, you had. Uh, that ignorance in a way worked for people who ate meat, but it also worked against you at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think the uh, the other concept uh, that you uh, bring up in chapter four is about ambivalence. So the kinds of ambivalences that uh, your informants had towards cows, beef, and also cow protectionists. Um, I invite you to say a little more about why thinking through ambivalence is a key to understanding uh, the ways in which your informants related to cattle uh, and beef eating. Okay, yeah. I mean, I think what it seemed to me was that the focus so far had been very much on what activists from both sides have, have done or what they've had to say. So it's been about, you know, either Hindu fundamentalists or nationalists who are, are, are very open in their, um, in, in their cow protectionist stance and being very anti cattle slaughter. And then on the other hand, you had you know, activist Dalit groups, for example, who organize you know, cow festivals on um, university campuses and so on um, to encourage this, this very public consumption of, of beef um, and, 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 and fight for the right to be able to eat beef as part of you know, Dalit culinary heritage, if you like. But it seemed to me, actually, that the majority of people, or at least those which I encountered, um, don't take those apparently oppositional positions, and that people actually change what they eat according to circumstances and across the life course, as I, as I was talking about earlier, which this framing of the de- debate entirely misses. 
Um, so most people who eat beef were not necessarily adamant about it. You know, if, if the government was to say to them, well, we'll give you chicken to eat instead and we'll give it to you at a much cheaper price and it will taste as good as the beef you're eating, then most of the people I knew would have shrugged and said, okay, that's great, fine, give us, give us this instead. Um, which is why I thought that often these assumptions were, were, were much more ambivalent than they appeared on the, surf, on the surface. So people would talk, let's say, I, I eat beef, but of course we shouldn't really kill it. You know, they, they, they held both positions at the same time, which, you know, in a way, I think also many people, you know, in Western Europe, for example, do. I, I know people um, here who, who don't want to eat fish where they can see its eye or something, or don't want to eat animals that are recognisable as the animal from which they've come. Um, and when you buy it chopped up in a packet or you buy it in a bag, um, it's removed from the, the, the animal itself. You know, if I ask people, would they be prepared to go and um, slit the neck of a, a, of a cow? They probably wouldn't be, but they might well be quite happy to have you know, a joint of roast beef on the, the Sunday dinner table or to have a beef curry and so on. But I think that that ambivalence occurs in, in, in perhaps most places um, in the world or perhaps in most contexts in which people eat beef although the particular meanings about it are obviously, you know, quite different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, speaking of uh, chicken, as we just did, in Chapter 5, you document the rising popularity of chicken in the area you did fieldwork in. You link this rise to not just the rising popularity of Hindu nationalism, but also economic, health, cultural, environment factors, um, the reasons why people might choose chicken over uh, beef or um, or over cow meat or buffalo meat. Uh, but towards the end, you also argue that Hindu nationalism and these other factors are not opposing, uh, but intertwined. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to note that the decisions taken over what meat to eat um, are not just taken in relation to that Hindu nationalist agenda. There are all sorts of other things which um, have have an impact on that that kind of decision. So price, for example, um, which means that something like chicken, which used to be you know much much more expensive um, than beef when most chickens were home reared or reared you know, in very small quantities, um, but now they're reared in these sort of big big farms, and you have broiler chickens. Um, it's now become as cheap as beef, and in some cases cheaper at certain times of the year. So it's become the default meat for many people who would otherwise regularly eat beef. I mean, most people I knew, I should also say, probably, you know, ate meat, you know, once a week. Um, and in some cases, you know, rather less often. It wasn't a daily affair. Um, and it's cheaper because of the industrialization of chicken production, which is in, in turn has meant that there are all kinds of chicken preparations available on the market that simply didn't exist in small town India, perhaps 15, 20 years ago. Um, And people might also shift from a vegetarian diet to sometimes eating beef because their doctor might advise it, which would be on health grounds. Um, um, And if they did, it would be for them to gain strength or vitality and so on. Um, Others who identify as beef eaters, on the other hand, might stop eating it because of high blood pressure, um, and other kinds of medical conditions. And what's interesting in terms of debates about environmentalism in particular, I think, 
is that while in the West, um, those concerns are often associated broadly with the liberal left or part of a leftist kind of um, agenda, in India, what you see are moves by the nationalist right to appropriate these environmentalist or animal rights arguments and to pitch them against Muslims and Dalits and, and others who eat, who eat meat. Um, so some environmentalist arguments, for example, like those of, of somebody like Vandana Shiva, for example, um, they've been picked up to argue in favour of this you know, harmonious vegetarian past, this idealised past. Um, pitched against a present that's been tarnished by Mughal, by Muslim, and, the, and then by British colonial invasion, who have brought with them all these particular environmental problems, um, these issues of animals not being treated well, um, and so on. And somebody like Maneka Gandhi, for example, um, I mean, she's probably the figure that probably best embodies this. And I think I write about her um, somewhere in the book. She's both an animal rights activist. She's the founder of this organization, People for Animals, um, and also a BJ politician. Um, so in India, there's a much greater blurring, I think, of the lines between what, on the one hand, you might think of as a fairly liberal environmentalist agenda or liberal environmentalist ideas and about animal welfare as well, and those of the nationalist right. And I think the nationalist right have certainly been very successful in, in appropriating those ideas for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, thank you for that. Um, and uh, moving on to the last chapter, chapter mm-hmm. six, um, you document how the social identity of your informants is negotiated via culinary techniques. And uh, I was wondering if you could tease out for our listeners how attending to meat eating and culinary experimentation mm-hmm relates not just to caste and community, but also to class. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, adding class into the mix certainly certainly complicates things a bit more. Um, now, one of the ways of countering cow protectionist arguments for people I worked with was to try to situate those debates outside of ideas about community or ideas about caste altogether and to try to relocate them within what we might think of, I guess, as a, as a transnational framework of, of class, of social class. Um, and this was something that was a possibility, which hadn't necessarily been a possibility in the past, but became a possibility following the economic liberal reforms um, in India that were accelerated during the 1990s, when other companies were allowed to come in, when there was uh, you know, different kinds of trade agreements that allowed different kinds of goods and services and so on to come into India. So meat and even beef in this context could potentially be reframed as a, as a mark of cosmopolitan sophistication, you know, where, where in opposition to that, adhering to a vegetarian diet could be seen as something that was rather parochial, you know, inward-looking, um, lacking in sophistication and, and, and so on. And so although the people I worked with were not economically middle class, you know, they didn't have the money necessarily to be able to present themselves in that way, they were able to use consumption to frame themselves as being modern or to be, to be aware, which is a phrase that um, I think I took from the anthropologist Susan Dewey, um, or they can present it as being cosmopolitan and so on. 
Um, and it was through doing those things that they were best able to improve their relative status, at least within their own community, even if it didn't necessarily translate to outside contexts. And food and the paraphernalia associated with food, you know, serving dishes, glasses, cups, all this kind of thing, um, was a, a much more accessible way of demonstrating that kind of sophistication than buying a car or a large motorbike or a big house or, you know, whatever. Um, you couldn't necessarily afford to do all of those things, but you could potentially um, signal some of these things through food and, 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 and cutlery and, and tableware and so on. And increasingly, you could do that also because cheaper versions of those things were available. You could buy plastic replicas of, you know, fancy glassware where you may have seen what appeared to be the real thing, you know, on a soap opera or in a film, for example. There will be cheap versions of this stuff um, in the market. And so the, having access to those things enabled people to demonstrate their, their kind of awareness or their knowledge by, for example, um, seating me at a table when I went to dinner at their house rather than seating me um, on a mat on the floor, which is what they would always have done um, in the past. Or they might serve food in serving dishes or on patterned melamine plates, for example, which have become increasingly ubiquitous rather than on steel or aluminium ones, which is what you know, all food would have been served on um, in the past. Or they could offer me bottled water you know, served in these crystal effect glasses instead of giving me municipal water in a kind of water chamber, one of these you know, water pots, um, which you poured directly into your mouth. Um, they could also offer dishes that went beyond the traditional fare, the kinds of recipes that everybody in the village would have been expected to know because they had accessed these recipes on, on YouTube, you know, on their, their smartphone or, or whatever. So whereas in the past, also meals were completed with um, what was called samia. Do you know, you might be familiar with samia, as, as, um, which was this sort of runny tapioca pudding served in a stainless steel cup, or this was how it was served in the village, um, which I always found very hard to eat after eating about a kilogram of, of white rice. Um, but these days, I was much more likely to be served a more refined kind of rice pudding with nuts and dried fruit or coconut kind of arranged artfully on top. And again, this you know, reference things that people had seen in, in consumer magazines. So I think what you saw here was, was cultural capital, in a sense, being mobilized. You know, it was a vision of class, a vision of class much more aligned to you know, Pierre Bourdieu, for example, than it was to the classic Marxist um, versions, which I'd, I'd first come across when I was looking at sociology, you know, way back in the 80s. Um, and so knowledge and skills in the cases that I describe in the book were also used to confer status, the ability to do those things, the ability to present food in, in that particular way, showed a certain kind of knowledge, a certain kind of sophistication, um, and so on. I mean, I should also probably just say, before I stop, that the picture, again, is much more nuanced than this probably suggests. And sorry, this seems to be my retort to almost <laughs> every, every single question, but... Um, Particularly in, in relation to meat, for example, it was much more easy for a high caste diner, um, ironically perhaps, to flaunt beef eating as a marker of sophistication than paradoxically it was for a Dalit of similar class status. Um, 
you know, for the latter, for the Dalit, um, you know, for Madigas I knew who had achieved some kind of middle class status in Hyderabad, if they were to eat meat or to eat beef in particular, there was always the risk that it was a potential indicator of their caste status as well. Whereas if you were a non-BT, you know, you, you came from a vegetarian Brahmin caste, um, you know, eating beef in a fancy restaurant, you, you were still a Brahmin at the end of the day. It didn't pose the same kind of risk potentially that it did to the Dalit. Um, so it seemed to me also that although class was very different in some ways to, to caste, the two always remained um, very much entangled. You know, you couldn't s- simply slip off one in favour of the other, even if, if, if people might have tried to do that. Yeah. I was also thinking of, uh, you know, re- uh, c- cooking shows on in like regional TV uh, channels like Ma TV or ETV and how of late there has been so much of a focus on cosmopolitan food or like fusion food. Uh, so bringing in like pasta with some like uh, Telugu tastes. And there's been a lot of, uh, yeah, again, like reworking on how to, I guess, like eat uh, into a cosmopolitan status. And of course, it's all gendered and it's mostly women cooking. Uh, but yeah, really, really interesting. I found that uh, I found chapter six to be, uh, yeah, very, very illuminating about, I think it kind of wove together disparate things that I had noticed um, in Andhra and Hyderabad that I was doing field work. And uh, yeah, it made um, a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> well, finally, I would love it if you could um, share with our listeners some of your ethnographic dilemmas around doing the study as a vegetarian and I guess uh, now vegan, um, because I found the self-reflexivity of your writing very compelling. And I'm sure ethnographers are tuning in and will find your uh, your means around this uh, perhaps what could have been a limitation, the, the way you handled it was very instructive. Oh, well, thank you. Um, I mean, as I think I said earlier, it was through, in, in a way, it was through being a vegetarian, um, as I identified as being at, at that point. Um, and again, I mean, that for me, that, I mean, I ate eggs as a, a UK kind of vegetarian, and at that time I ate dairy, but not meat or fish. Um, it was through being in that position that I was alerted to the importance of some of the issues that I've talked about. And I'm not sure, actually, whether if I'd simply been eating beef, whether I would have noticed or had those kinds of encounters um, that I had with people. So, well, sometimes that made me uncomfortable, um, you know, particularly when my choices not to eat meat aligned me in the eyes of some, not many, but in some of my interlocutors with the high caste Hindus who they thought oppressed them. Um, who they thought I shouldn't be aligned with, and, and you know that also confused them. At the same time, it did open up context in which to have those kinds of discussions and to talk about things with them in ways that I think otherwise might not have been possible, that might have always remained um, unsaid. Um, I mean, at the same time, not eating beef did mean that for some of the butchers I became friendly with, for example, it meant that they were rather more reticent um, about inviting me for dinner, not because you know they they were worried that I would be offended. I mean, I sat there watching them chop up bits of beef with being flecked with bits of bone and and, and blood and so on. So um, I don't think they were offended by it, but it confused them, and they and it was very hard then sometimes I think for them to think, well, what 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 could I feed this person that would be suitable as a guest? I can't give them you know popucharu kind of um. You know, these dull kind of dishes, although I would have been quite happy with those. Um, <laughs> but because they didn't know how to feed me as a guest. 
So it did have some limitations, but I think on balance, it was probably more of an advantage, um, more of an advantage because it enabled me to open up um, open up those, those, those sorts of discussions. And I think it was also while I was doing the most recent field work for the book, you know, when I was present when cattle were being slaughtered, um, that I began to think, well, you know, is this the worst thing that could happen to an animal? You know, in some ways, it seemed to be less cruel from an animal welfare perspective to be slaughtering an elderly cow at the end of its life in the, in the way that they were doing and then to eat the meat um, than perhaps it was to you know, hook her up to milking machines for years and years on end for dairy products. And you know, I think because of the algorithms um, on my computer, I don't quite know how those things work, but I was obviously doing lots of searches at the time for things that related to cattle, that related to meat and so on. So I kept being directed to you know, various short videos on, on the dairy industry, on the evils of the dairy industry or the egg producing industry, you know, things about male chicks being you know, um, ground up in machines because, of, you know, because they couldn't produce eggs. So you know, even something like eating eggs had implications for, for other animals. So I got to the point where I thought, well, either I've got to start eating beef um, like my informants, or I should try to stop consuming animal products altogether. Um, and for me, it seemed it, it seemed to be inconsistent to reject eating some of those things, but eating some of the things that I was, which was you know, why I ended up adopting um, that vegan diet or vegan lifestyle or whatever we might call it um, instead, which so far has been fine. That's, that's worked out. Um, and it's certainly become easier in Western Europe and I think probably in the States as well to be a vegan now it's become almost a, a sort of slightly ahead of the curve as it became you know, as, it beca- as it became fashionable. Um, although quite what my Indian friends will think um, or, or make of that when I return and they want me to you know want to make me tea or pour ghee onto my dal, I'm I'm not sure and how flexible I will then will then need to be. Um, but I'll, I'll cross that bridge when I when I come to it. I was just going to say that. I was like, it's really, really hard to be vegan in India because like there's ghee and I don't know, tea and coffee and um, yeah, especially ghee. I can't imagine living without it, to be very mm. honest. No, no, I feel <laughs> tempted now, even at the mention of it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, before we let you go, I'm sure we would all love to know what are you working on currently and what might we expect to see from you in the near future? Gosh, well, I, I, I'll continue, I think, to work with the same group of people um so i've been with them for for so long and i think one of the you know advantages has been able to work with people over a very long period of time which enables you to perhaps draw out those kinds of changes whether it's in the way people eat or the way they do things um and one of the things i'm currently doing is is well that i'm planning to start is to i suppose go back to where it all started and to look at how um leprosy pol- policy over the last 30 years or so has changed the lives of the people that I've been working with. Um, so the idea, if it comes off and, you know, if the COVID situation ever permits me to return to India to do field work, or as long as this book doesn't get me banned by the Indian government from ever going back um, again, um, the, the plan is to try to trace the links between policy, between leprosy policy as it's been formulated by um, international bodies, so like the World Health Organization, for example, 
and then becomes transformed as it's disseminated through, you know, through other international um, non-governmental organizations, through national governments like the Indian government, and then through grassroots NGOs, um, through hospitals, and so on and so on, right down to the people who, as people affected by leprosy, are the end recipients. And you know, in my previous work, I'd only worked with that group you know, right at the end. So I'm kind of intrigued, partly through having tried to trace through this network or this chain that a cow moves through or a, bit, a buffalo moves through from the farmer to, to the plate. It's a shorter chain to try and look at how these different parts of the journey that policy takes um, fit together. And I think having worked with that same group of people for so long, hopefully puts me in a good position, at least to try and capture some of the changes and trends. And, you know, I can compare things that people were telling me 20, 30 years ago with how they feel now, because you know, leprosy officially should have been eradicated years ago. Um, but it is still very much there, even though it's officially um, eliminated. And then in addition, at the same time, I, I, I still remain fascinated by food. So I still want to um, continue working on that and on changing food ways. Um, and there are still lots of things which came up as I was doing the research for the book, which, you know, different trajectories I kept finding myself wanting to go into, but thought, no, I must you know, remain focused. I must get this, 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 this stuff done first. Um, but at the time thinking, well, it would be great, for example, to live and work more closely with particular cattle farmers so that you actually follow the, the particular relationship. I touch upon it in the book, but to look in more detail at the particular relationship that people have um, with their cattle or to spend time in abattoirs or indeed if I could get access to some of the bigger meat processing plants and exporters, these very big um, industrialized companies, which you know, were very different to the kinds of outlets that I was involved in, but which somehow fit into that, 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 that chain and which are producing these things, you know, like the chicken burgers, which are sold in the, the faux KFC kind of outlets that you've got in, in small town India. You know, they're producing bags of frozen, frozen products, which are not being produced, you know, in back rooms or, you know, in, 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 in the places in the market where people are chopping up beef and selling it in black plastic bags. There are other kinds of outlets as well. So, um, and, and although those two strands are very different from one another, the kind of leprosy-related stuff, medical anthropology on the one hand and the food on the other, I think in some ways they're both about exploring the connections with different points along a chain. So, um, I mean, there are some connections, certainly methodological connections between the two, I think. But... Um, I will go back and I will, will again try and follow my nose and see <laughs> see which of the directions it takes me. Yeah, I mean they both sound like really promising and interesting projects. So I just wish you all the luck with um, with the work that follows. And uh, once again, thank you so much for uh, joining in today and having this conversation. It's in the morning for me and I'm feeling really intellectually charged and ready to take on the day. So thank you. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's, it's great to be given the opportunity to talk about your own work, which doesn't necessarily always happen very often. So yeah, thank you very much. I'm really glad to hear that and um, have a good day and stay safe. Thank you. <laughs>